When Christ came to this earth, the Bible makes it very, very clear that he gave up none of his deity to become fully man. He was the God-man. He probably, as part of what we call the kenosis, his self-emptying, gave up the outward expression of his glory. That's one of the things that he prayed for in the garden prior to his crucifixion, that his glory would be restored with the Father as he would go back to be with the Father after his resurrection and ascension. So that gives us a little bit of a clue of what may have been given up when when Christ came as a man. But he was still fully God. He was absolutely omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He can, he, in him was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in his humanity, he suffered and understands what we go through so he could become a great high priest for us who could be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But let me throw this out and, and ask this rhetorically. Was Christ capable of doing everything that God can do while he was here on the earth as a man? And the answer is yes. Well, that didn't even have to be rhetorical. I don't know why I even said that. Uh, he, he's, he could do everything. But were there ever times that his work was restrained, that it was limited? And the answer to that is yes. The Bible tells us that when Christ went to his hometown of Nazareth. He went and he spoke to the people there. He had already performed some great works and the people in Nazareth were aware of that and they're asking this question about him. Who is this man? We know his mother and father. They, they thought they knew his father but they, they didn't really know his father. His father was the father. And they looked at him and they said, We know his brothers and his sisters, and they named the brothers. They didn't name the sisters, but they identified the fact that he had half-brothers and half-sisters, and that his father had been a carpenter. And who is this man? And Jesus' response to their reaction to him was that a prophet doesn't have honor, or a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. In other words, when he came home, there was no honor for him there. But then something very interesting was stated. The Bible tells us that because of their unbelief, he did not do mighty works there. They they lost out because of that. That became a reflection of an event that took place prior to that that is given to us here in Psalm 78. This is a psalm that was written again by Asaph. We, we met him last week and we saw his lament about why the, the wicked seem to prosper. But now he's going on here in Psalm 78 about a whole other dimension, a whole other issue that is of extreme importance, not only for the people of Israel, but quite honestly for us. And what he does is he identifies certain elements of our behavior that can limit God's working on our behalf. 
I want you to look with me in Psalm 78 over at verse 41 because this really becomes a a somewhat pivotal verse for our understanding of what is about to unfold here. In Psalm 78, 41, it says this. Let me begin at verse 40. How often they provoked him. The they there is speaking of the children of Israel. The him is God himself. How often they provoked him in the wilderness, now we have a time frame, and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. So now we have to have a clear understanding of this. God is not limited by lack of capability. His limitations of doing work on behalf of his people are the result of the way his people act and the way they respond. When Asaph began this particular psalm, he really brought to our attention something that's a very, very important principle. And we've already mentioned it briefly. That is that we as God's people will communicate to the next generation the truths and the realities of who our God is what he is capable of doing, what he has provided for us through the sacrifice of Christ so that you guys can one day teach the generation that follows you. By God's grace, you will be having children. You will be responsible for their well-being, just like your parents have been. You will raise them to try to protect them and to help them get along well in life. But there will be nothing more important for you to do than to communicate the truths of God's word to the next generation. There is nothing more important for anyone in this room to do than to communicate the truths of God's word to you. So that's really our responsibility. And it's not something that we just embrace on the Lord's day. It's part of our daily walk because what Asaph is going to address here in Psalm 78 really involves the day-to-day routine of the children of Israel. And what we're told is because of the way they behaved themselves, God was limited in what he did, not by capability, but by his own response to their behavior. Let's take a look at seven different things that we can identify in this psalm that will limit God's working on our behalf. And we find the first one right away in verse 9 after Asaph gives us this introduction about what is vitally important for us to do for the next generation. In verse 9, he says this, The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. When he makes mention of this event, we're not sure what he's talking about. There's no indication of the specific event. And all we can do is try to surmise what had happened in a very important event in Israel's life. And it appears that, and by the way, the reference to Ephraim often is a reference to the northern tribes of the children of Israel. They will be referred to as Ephraim. Um, Apparently, an enemy arose and the Israelites were prepared to do battle, but when the battle came, they turned and they ran. They were fearful. 
And when we begin to put together how that applies to us, we don't go out. And and, and here's where, where I have to be so careful today because we are involved in conflict. We are involved in physical war and and battles. But that's not really what the issue is for believers today. The issue that we face is that we are dealing with a spiritual enemy against whom we must take a stand or run in fear. And what the Lord says is this, if you are fearful, then what you can count on is limiting my work on your behalf. What we need today is a generation of individuals who will stand up and speak out for what is right, no matter what the consequences. We need people who will speak out and take a stand for truth, particularly in a period in our history where truth seems to be at a premium. Lies fly all over the place. And we find people today ignoring the reality of God's existence and we find them moving in such a way as to move against him. And we need a generation of people who will stand up and say, I know the Lord, I will stand for him, and here is what I will do for you. I will tell you about his love. I will tell you about his grace. And I will tell you about his holiness. And I will tell you about his justice. So that you understand and know who the true and the living God is. I, I don't know if you do this, but I've tried to make this a regular practice in my prayer time. I am really trying to pray regularly and faithfully for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East who are being tortured and losing their lives for the cause of Christ. We don't hear a lot about them. We've heard about the journalists. We've heard about the the British... uh, Was it a British gentleman? I believe it was, a British gentleman, where these men were beheaded. You probably heard about the young lady who was beheaded. Pardon me? In Oklahoma. And wasn't that because of um, her considering converting or something? I didn't read the story. What? Ah, that's it. Okay. Anyway, I've gone astray there. It just came to mind because it seems to be such a, a horrendous thing. But I want to tell you, folks, we better get accustomed to it or better stand up against it. Anyway, what I don't know is the number of professing Christians who denied the faith and embraced Islam so they would not suffer and they would not die. And I cannot speak about them with disdain. I can only speak with pity because I have no idea what it would be like to be looking into the eyes of one of those ISIS people or one of the Somalis or one of the Boko Haram 
or whatever other group there is that says either you change or we kill you. I don't know. And I've shared this with you before. I, I hope that I would have the courage to stand when that time ever came. And I pray that God would give the grace to be able to stand at such a time. But we don't face that. What do we face? We face some ridicule. In the workplace, if I speak up for Christ, all the guys that tell the dirty jokes won't have anything to do with me anymore. All the women who gossip and spread the news won't have anything to do with me anymore. So I just really kind of keep it quiet. And we wonder why God is not working. And it comes because we're afraid. We, sometimes at school, and I understand that not all of our young people go to Highlands. But the fact that most of you do go to Highlands does not exempt you from the need to stand up for Christ because you guys face temptations just like they do in public school. You hear the stories they tell. You hear about what the guys and the girls are doing together. You're probably confronted from time to time with drugs. You say, would that happen to kids at our school? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you need the guts to stand up and say, no, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm going to live for him. And we need the guts to stand up and say, no, I'm going to live for Christ. Where I would really like to see some courage is among men in our Christian homes. Men who would not be wimps, but who would stand up and say to their wives who disobey God, stop it. You need to stop disobeying God. And I am telling you as your husband, you need to do that. Now, I would never encourage any kind of abusive behavior. You all understand that. Wow. Do you think I would ever endorse that? Please don't think that. But we need men who are willing to say, here is what God's word says. And even though your friends may do something else, we're not going to do that because we're going to take a stand courageously for Christ in what he says, and we're not going to give in to our own emotions, to the ways of the world, to the things that we think are better than God's ways. We need some guts. We need men who will be men who will take spiritual leadership within their homes, and when their wives get out of line, they will say, wait a minute, you're not going to do that. Where are these men? The children of Israel didn't have the courage to stand up and do what was right. And God could not work on their behalf. In the next verse, verse 9, pardon me, verse 10, 
they did not keep the covenant of God, they refused to walk in his law. Oh, my goodness. What do you see as one of the primary problems in our society today as far as our economics for our nation is concerned, as far as our well-being as a people? Um, what, what would you say today is one of the great detriments to our nation excluding the moral issues of the gay marriages and the abortion, those, those are extremely important issues. But is there another issue that seems to be involved that really seems to be taking us down? Political correctness, debt, greed, cell phones. <laughs> Good point. Oh, did you guys hear that? <laughs> Hey, they, they carry their Bibles on, on cell phones, so we're, we're going to let them use them. <laughs> let me throw this out to you and just see if you agree. Entitlements. Entitlements. You get for free what you don't earn. Now, there are people who should receive help that are absolutely incapable of caring for themselves for one reason or another, and I am in no way talking about those that are absolutely deserving of help. And as a nation, if we could limit it to that group, they could be well cared for, and we as a people would not be in the financial doldrums and the downward trend that we find ourselves in. But I'm not here to talk to you about that. What I am here to talk to you about is this. There are people who believe that following Christ provides an entitlement. What benefits do I have in Christ? I have been forgiven of all of my sins. I have been granted the gift of eternal life. I have the Spirit of God indwelling me to be my teacher, to be my guide, to be my comforter. I have the Word of God that is His revelation that tells us about Him and identifies for us His expectations for those who call Him Father. I have all of that. But don't hit me with my responsibilities. Don't tell me what I ought to do. By the way, I was told years and years ago that as a pastor, I should not use the word ought because it implies a directive. My response to that ought, 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 ought. There are things we ought to do as a child of God who enjoy the benefits of the blessings that God has freely given to us and we ought to obey him. When he tells us that there are things we ought to do, we ought to do them. The Ten Commandments. 
You have all heard this. They are not ten suggestions. They are commandments. The, the law of love that we find in Christ puts parameters around our behavior that says there are certain things that I ought not do for your benefit. And so when I see what Israel did and what God did in response to them, I'm reminded I have a responsibility. Yes, I have been entitled to so many things that God has freely given me that I do not deserve. But quite frankly, in response to that entitlement, there are responsibilities I need to carry out. That would be a great thing if we could get people who are getting all the entitlements today who can work and who can do things if they would work and they would do things. Right? Right. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Give me all the benefits, but don't ask me to do any of the, the hard stuff. No, 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 no. When, it, when I don't feel like doing it, I am literally going to look at your word and I'm going to see what it says and I'm going to say, nope. That's not what I'm going to do. That's what Israel did. And it limited God's work on their behalf. The third element is found in verse 11. And they forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Look at what they forgot. They forgot, and, and we're not going to be reading all of these verses, but as you go through the remainder of this, and it's not written in chronological order, but it's a historic reflection on what God did for the people of Israel. And it brings to mind to them the freedom that they were given from the bondage that they had been enwrapped in in Egypt and the way God miraculously brought these plagues into the Egyptians' lives to free the children of Israel. And it goes on to talk about the different things that happened as they were set free, the dividing of the sea, a miraculous event on their behalf. It goes on to talk about the, the water that was provided for them. And, and it, it goes on to talk about the food that was provided for them. We're going to talk about that in, in just a few moments. But it talks about the way God led them during the day with this pillar of cloud and at night with this flame of fire and they could follow that and when it came to rest, they would rest. But then when it moved, they would move and, and God said, don't you remember what I did for you? Don't, don't you remember all of the things that I did in order to demonstrate to you not only who I am, but how I've provided for you. I took care of every one of your needs. Your sandals didn't wear out as you were walking through the wilderness. Forty years, and your sandals didn't wear out. How often do you guys change sneakers? Every year? Or maybe more? Yeah? You guys don't spend a hundred bucks on sneakers, do you? Why are you laughing? 
No, we don't spend 100. We spend 150. <laughs> now, listen, I know that that's become a big thing with kids. And, and, and understandably, I, that's just the society in which we live. You're getting ripped off. Um, it is a miracle when the shoes don't wear out for 40 years. And the people of Israel forgot the good things that God had done for them. Look over at verse 42. Let me make sure. Yes, 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. I think sometimes it's easy for us as believers in Christ, especially those of us who have been saved when we were young, to forget the importance of the day of redemption and to remember what it was like to come before God, burdened down with our sins, to turn in faith to Christ for him to take the punishment of our sin and to lay upon us his righteousness so that the Father sees us in him perfectly righteous and to walk away having been cleansed, having been granted life, having been granted peace. And God told the children of Israel, I I showed you my power by the way I provided for you. And I brought peace into your lives when the Egyptians were chasing you and you went through the land, or pardon me, through the sea on dry land, and they tried to chase you. I took care of them. Your enemy was destroyed. Don't forget the day of redemption. And then don't forget all of the blessings that we have enjoyed in Christ Jesus. We're an unusual group here. Because there are not many people around us that enjoy the privileges that we enjoy. Where we can go right into the presence of the Father through Jesus Christ. They might raise their voices to God but he has no responsibility to hear those who don't come to him through Christ. The children of Israel forgot. There's a fourth problem. As you drop down to verse 17, read this. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, and they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And now we see the doubt that they have in God's capability to provide for them. And they don't just want what they need. That verse makes it very clear. They had some desires that they wanted God to fulfill. They asked him according to their fancy. And you know what's interesting? God provided it. 
They didn't think he could set a table for them in the wilderness. What did he mean by that? Or what did they mean by that? What they meant was, okay, you gave us water. Now where's the food? And as you read on in this, if you continue to read right after those verses, and it's very interesting, the the English translation here is they ate angels' food, which is really kind of cool. Just think, they ate the manna that came down. They ate the quail that came and, and literally covered the ground. So they had the bread, they had the meat, they had the water, they had everything they needed, not only for their survival, but God mercifully and graciously met their fancy. Even though they didn't think he had the power to take care of the problem. Does he have the capability to do this? And the answer comes back to us. Yes, his power is not limited by anything other than that which is contrary to who he is. It's the only thing. And we doubt that that trial we're going through could ever be taken care of by God. that that disease we're fighting could be taken care of by God. That that lack in our lives could be provided by God. And we as his people need to understand there is nothing that limits his capability. He has unlimited power. But there's another dimension that's introduced that we have to consider when we consider doubt. And it almost sounds synonymous, but it's not. If you'll look further with me down there at verse 22, well, let's begin at verse 21. It says, Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. What is this saying? It is saying something quite different than doubting. It is unbelief that is focused upon the loss of a perception that everything that God does is good. They would look at the battles they fought and say, how can this be good? And God was preparing them for their entrance into the land of Canaan, so that when they saw war, they would not turn and run, but they would be courageous. So now the doubt questions God's ability, and the unbelief questions God's goodness. Can he, as the all-powerful God, not do everything the way we want and still be good? And the answer to Israel was yes. Does God take away every problem you face? Not always. Not if the problem you're facing is designed for your benefit. Does he heal every disease we have? Not always. Especially when the disease we have is designed for his good, or pardon me, our good, and his glory. And so... When the Israelites doubted God and didn't believe in his goodness, they suppressed his work. 
And we can be guilty of the same. People blame God when he doesn't come through the way he wants them, wants them to or the way they want him to. And, uh, and the Lord says, well, in spite of that, I'm still going to be good to you because that's exactly what he did with Israel. As you, as you read the verses that follow this, you're going to find that God continues to provide in spite of all these things. He doesn't do all the work that he would have done on their behalf, but he continues to give them far more than they deserve just because he is a good and a gracious God. There's a sixth that's introduced to us down here at verse 34. It says, Because of the rebellion of the Israelites, a time came when he slew them. Then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God, then they remembered that God was their rock. Now that sounds wonderful. It sounds like, okay, God brought judgment on them and some of them had to die in order for that turning in their lives to take place. And now it looks like, okay, they've turned to him until we get to verse 36 and that nevertheless becomes really problematic. Nevertheless, They flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue for their heart was not steadfast with him nor were they faithful in his covenant. This insincerity that infected them. They would come before God as if they were great religious people responding to the judgment that he brought upon them but they're lying to him with their tongues. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, uh, uh, this would be the definition of hypocrisy. And you all know, you know where hypo- the, the word for hypocrite came from? It, it was a theatrical term. What it meant was that here is a person who is performing before an audience, but he or she takes a mask And so you no longer see the real person. Now you see a mask that covers the real person behind it. And the position and the the part that they play is very, very different from the reality of who they are. So they were a hypocrite. Now today, we kind of have taken that word and we've made it mean something pretty bad but it really is still essentially the same as it originally started. The person behind the mask is the real person, but what that person looks like on the outside is not that real person, which makes them a hypocrite. I hope that nothing really changes in your life on Monday from Sunday. or Tuesday from Sunday, or Wednesday from Sunday, or Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday from Sunday. Because who we are, God knows perfectly. And we can put up masks on a given day and not really be that person. That limits God's work. Hypocrisy. The final thing that really becomes problematic is actually found over here in verse 57, but I'm going to start at verse 56. 
Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. <laughs> a bow that doesn't work right. Do you, you guys all saw um, um, Lord of the Rings. Who's, who's the guy, the, the white-haired guy that... Who? Legolas? Legolas. Legolas. I, if, if, that had, if you had asked me that to save my life, I couldn't have come up with it. But I remember this. That guy would pull out the bows, he would string them, he'd let the bow fly or the arrow fly, and it was right on the target. But what if that bow didn't work right? None of you except uh, my mother-in-law and maybe a couple other people ever knew my father-in-law. A very, very interesting man. A strong man. A committed follower of Christ. An evangelist who has made an impact in northeastern United States in particular as few other men have. He, He really had an incredible evangelistic ministry pastored churches, and uh, he passed away. But before he did, uh, they were living in um, uh, a townhouse in, was it Warminster? In Warminster, Pennsylvania, not near Philadelphia. And uh, my father-in-law, was he, he loved to hunt, and he had uh, guns, and he had a bow and arrow. And one day, and this is when my son is still pretty small, he said, hey, Brian and Matt, he said, come on down into the basement. I want to show you something. And I get down there, and up against the wall are all these stacks of uh, cardboard and then, like, pillows and, and wood and a target. <laughs> and he had set up a bow and arrow range down there. Now, you have to understand, this isn't that big. This is, like, from here to the wall. And, and he says, okay. He says, I, w- I want to see you shoot, shoot an arrow. Well, I didn't shoot bow and arrow. I, I had when I was younger. I, you know, when I went to a camp, they taught you how to shoot. So I said, okay, all right, I'll humor him. And uh, I took the bow, pulled the arrow back, let it fly right in the center of the bullseye. I am not lying to you. I heard somebody over there make a snide remark. He went nuts because he and I competed in just about everything. He would kill me in tennis, but I beat him in golf. So anyway, which means he was really bad in golf. Um, He said, you could never do that again. Now, folks, you have to understand something. I can take no credit for this. This was absolutely either a divine hand or if there is such a thing as luck, absolute luck. But maybe I was better than I thought. Anyway, pulled up the arrow, or the arrow and the bow, hit the other arrow. <laughs> At that point, I'm like, I am not shooting again. <laughs> well, this drove him crazy. He grabbed the bow. He took an arrow. 
He put it down on the, the rest and pulled it back into the string. But he is just so worked up about what I had just done that when he lets the arrow fly, it's not seated. It's off to the side. And the thing goes flying up into the heat duct, glances off of that, glances off the wall. I grab Matthew. We go to the floor and <laughs> we're laying down there for our lives. Let me tell you something. He would blame the bow. And that's what happens when a bow is bad. In this case, it wasn't the bow. But what the Lord has said to us in this verse is this. If you aren't faithful in carrying out the work that I give you to do, you're like that bow that can't shoot right. And I want to tell you, if you're in battle and you're in conflict and that bow is your weapon, you better be able to shoot that thing. It better hit the target. You don't want to go to war. You don't want to get involved in the conflict with a bow that doesn't work right. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, you are like bows who don't work right. I can't count on you. I can't trust you. So there are things I can entrust to your care. I wonder if he would say today, I can't trust you with the gifts that I've given to you. And I can't trust you to do a greater work than you're doing right now because you're really not doing it right now. And so when the Lord looks at his people and he says, you haven't been faithful, then he, he can't do his work through us the way he wants Seven things that God says will hinder his work. So when you look at the other side of the ledger, let's not walk out of here looking at what God doesn't want. But let's look at what he does want. What does he desire? He desires people who are courageous. He desires people who are obedient. He desires people who reflect upon his goodness. He desires people who live with confidence in his capabilities. He desires people who trust in his goodness. He desires people who are genuine. And he desires people who are faithful. God wants to work through his people. And the only thing that will stop it is us. Or we can open the doors and say, I'm going to be the kind of person that God wants me to be so that whatever he desires to do in and through my life, he has the absolute freedom to do. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you, Father, for the example that you gave us in the people of Israel, even though it was a negative one, because from it we learn what you desire for us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be the people you want us to be. I pray, Father, that we would reject 
those flaws that characterize the children of Israel and that we would embrace the virtues that should characterize your people for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you.